0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Business Edge, the official podcast of the Feliciano School of Business at Montclair State University. I'm your host, Erin Blake. In this episode, we'll discuss financial stability by taking a look at the past and predicting the future. In just a few moments, you'll hear from Louis Alexander, U.S. Chief Economist and Head of Fixed Income Research in the Americas, for Nomura Securities International. Mr. Alexander will address the 2008 financial crisis and conclude by answering the question, will the next recession be as big as prior recessions? Let's get started.
1: Thanks very much. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, So um, I'm going to um, talk about the financial crisis. Let me explain a little bit why. So 10 years ago, I was working at Citi, and I was asked by Tim Geithner, who had just been nominated to be the Secretary of the Treasury, to come down to Washington to work on the crisis. Um, I had gotten to know Tim earlier in my career when we had both been working in Washington during the period of the Asian financial crisis. I had been at the Fed. He had been at Treasury. And so we'd sort of known each other for a, for a long time, but I basically split my career between the policy world and Wall Street. Now, for me, that's been a great thing. I've really enjoyed having that kind of career. Um, I actually think it's been good for the country to have people that kind of make that change. Not everyone would agree with that, uh, but I would argue very strongly that's the case. I would actually encourage Um, people who are early in their career to think about careers that span both the public sector and the private sector. I'm happy to talk about that more later. I'm going to kind of come back to that, but that's been a very important part for me of how my career has gone, and I think there are are benefits both for the individuals involved uh, and for the country more broadly, but I'd be happy to talk about that more. Now, when I went down to work uh, at Treasury in 2009. Um, frankly, the first six months I was there was the hardest I've ever worked. Um, that was an important time uh, trying to deal with a financial crisis. My last, six, my last six months at Treasury, I spent helping to set up this thing called the Office of Financial Research, which was something that was created under Dodd-Frank. It was a sort of a research organization that was designed to sort of think about financial stability. After I left Treasury and joined Amora, I was actually asked to chair an advisory committee for OFR, which I did up until last summer. That's a long way of saying I basically spent a good chunk of the last um, 10 years thinking about the crisis and financial stability, and this is kind of an opportunity for me, frankly, to pull together some of my thoughts, but that's kind of what I'm going to talk about. Now, the natural first question for you guys to ask is, why should you care? Um, There's actually a good reason for that. Um, This is a simple chart that just has, this is the unemployment rate, so I'm gonna use this screen if others can see it. Um, Red line's the unemployment rate, black line's a measure of so-called Nehru, the full employment level. I'm showing you this back to 1960. The other thing on this chart is the gray bars here are recessions. The pink bars are periods when the unemployment rate is actually below Nehru. Now, you can see that we have recessions every now and again. Those recessions tend to be preceded by periods when the unemployment rate goes below the full employment level. If you look at where we are now, we're sort of into that pink zone. The single most important question I get asked by investors right now is when is the recession coming and how bad is it going to be? Well. If you look at the last three recessions, we had a relatively mild one in 1991, we had another relatively mild one in 2001, and then we had this really bad one in 2008 through 2009. Not only did the unemployment rate get all the way up to 10%, it took a really long time to come back down. This was a very bad cycle, really the worst since we've had since the Great Depression. If we're about to have a recession, and I'm not saying it's coming tomorrow, but given where we are here, you need to be thinking about that. It is important to ask yourself the question, what is that recession going to be like? Is it gonna be like one of these relatively mild ones, or is it gonna be something like this? Understanding the financial crisis is part of understanding what's coming. I'm going to talk about the stuff I've been thinking about for the last 10 years, but I would argue it is very relevant for you all as you think about what's going to happen going forward. So that's the kind of motivation. Now, I want to try very quickly to talk about five things. Um, First thing is I want to talk about the prelude to the crisis and basically how it played out. A kind of a very quick version of what was the crisis. I then wanna talk a little bit about a sort of stylized conceptual framework for a financial crisis to give you a bit of a framework for how to think about what happened. Thirdly, I wanna talk about what caused the crisis. So there are different explanations for sort of what got us into it. I then wanna talk a little bit about what's been done since. So there was a crisis, there was a response, what have we actually done? And then lastly, I want to talk about where we are now, which kind of gets to this question of, are we facing another one of these or not? So that's the plan. Um, so what was the prelude to the crisis? Well, basically, we had a period starting after the last recession in 2001 when the economy was actually doing reasonably well and for a variety of reasons, there was pretty strong risk appetite. There was a sort of willingness on the investors to sort of take on risk. That translated into households having access to a lot of mortgage credit. So individuals during this period, it was relatively easy to get a mortgage and you had a lot of mortgage credit going out. That resulted in an expansion of home ownership So if you look at the set of people who actually owned homes, it increased notably. So historically, before this, home ownership rates were about 60% of households. That got up to between 65 and 70 at the peak. So there was an expansion of who actually owned a home. Now, for a time, for the first part of this process, rising home prices actually justified this expansion of mortgage credit. However, um, it went too far. One of the things that was going on during this period was you were seeing a lot of financial engineering. So there was a lot of financial innovation that was affecting the way this risk was being distributed throughout the financial system. But it was doing it in a way that in the boom part of the phase, it meant it was easier to get mortgages because there was a place to sell that mortgage risk. So financial engineering during this period was a very important part of sort of the boom phase. Now, ultimately, it all went too far. It went too far in a bunch of different dimensions. One dimension is, basically, that expansion of mortgage credit to individuals went too far. To be perfectly frank, at the end, people were getting mortgages that they probably should not have had. It was not in their interest to have them. Second of all, the financial engineers, the people in the financial sector who were actually distributing this risk, underestimated the underlying risk that was in this market. So the people that were actually in the financial sector that were thinking about it misjudged it. A third point that was very important, an awful lot of this mortgage risk was essentially financed with short-term funding. So essentially you had things like deposits of one form or another, very short-term funding that was going into funding long-term assets. That was an aspect of this robust risk appetite and this environment that was very important in terms of the way the, the crisis played out. And lastly, one of the things that happened was you saw during this period that mortgage risk essentially migrated across the financial system outside of the areas that were well regulated. We have a pretty diverse financial system. One of the characteristics of the U.S. financial system is it's not regulated in one coherent way. (laughs) We have things that we call banks that are regulated in one way, and then we have other kinds of financial institutions that are regulated by different institutions with different standards. Banks tend to be more restrictive in terms of the regulations they're subject to, and so what happened was this mortgage risk kind of leaked outside of that zone in ways that sort of contributed to um, excessive risk-taking during this period. So that was sort of the buildup. Now, this is sort of the consequence. So the red line here is just housing prices. This is an index that comes from Bob Schiller, who uh, won a Nobel Prize a couple years ago for finance. The scale of this is 1892 equals 100. That's not a typo. They've actually taken this data data all the way back to the 19th century. And what you will see is up until around 2000, prices really hadn't gone up that much. These are real home prices, so this is deflated just for, for inflation. But part of the point of this is, if you look at where things were before the boom, they weren't, they hadn't actually gone up that much. This is the boom. It's a substantial sort of appreciation of prices. The gray line on this chart is mortgage debt as a share of income. So you're looking at essentially how much debt is held by households against this. And again, you can see this peak. So this is the period that created the problem, a very rapid increase in prices, very substantial increase in debt. This is when the crisis happened. This is the reaction to it. Now, you will notice that prices are now back up here. But debt has actually gone down. I'm not particularly worried about housing prices now because of the fact that the debt isn't there to back it up. Happy to talk about that more later, but there's a sort of interesting story about that. The bottom line is this was the period when we when things were creating a problems, it was this adjustment on the other side that created the huge issue. So, how did the crisis actually play out? Crisis basically played out starting in 2007, running through the middle of 2009. And there are really sort of three different phases. The first phase is when prices actually started to fall. So the housing market, broadly defined, peaked in 2006. By early 2007, it was clear that there were problems emerging and you started to see losses on these mortgage-backed securities build up. So the first half of 2007 was a period when people were coming to recognize that there was a problem. Didn't quite know how big it was, but that was the first phase. Up until about the middle of 2007, it wasn't really creating huge problems. You reached a point in 2007 though where those losses had reached a point where a whole bunch of investment vehicles that held this investment risk were coming under pressure. There were a lot of different ones. One of the most prominent ones were things that were called structured investment vehicles that were set up by banks to hold this mortgage risk. You essentially had long-term mortgage-backed securities on the asset side, on the liability side. You had very short-term funding, a lot of it through the commercial paper market. That was an inherently kind of unstable way to fund these things. And when you reached a point around the middle of 2007 when you started to realize how big these losses were, all of these funding vehicles became unviable. So from roughly the middle of 2007 till about March of 2008 was a period when these funding vehicles were under pressure, you were having to redistribute the risk, and losses started to build further. That's kind of phase two. Phase three started really in March of 2008 when the first major financial institution really came under pressure, that was Bear Stearns. So in March of 2008, these losses had transitioned from these narrow financing vehicles to major financial institutions. So March of 2008, you have Bear Stearns, that gets into trouble, ultimately it gets bought by JP Morgan, you go over the summer, you have more issues, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are government-backed mortgage securities entities. The government decided they had to essentially step in and take them over in early September. A week later, Lehman Brothers failed, and that was the most intense part of the the crisis. Basically, from that point forward, you had a major set of interventions that included major injections of capital from the government, you had major guarantees that were extended to broad parts of the financial system. You had the Federal Reserve providing liquidity in all sorts of ways, um, unprecedented ways I might add. You also had major macroeconomic stimulus in the form of dramatically, dramatic changes in monetary policy as well as, as well as big fiscal stimulus. And then ultimately a stress test on the banking system to try and dig into it and really assess the losses. All of that played out basically between September of 08 and May of 2009, which is the point when things started to get better. Now, in the meantime, all of that stress on the financial system basically contracted the credit that was being provided by the financial system to the broader economy, and you generated this very deep recession. That's the kind of broad arc of it now I want to talk a little bit about a sort of how to think about in broad terms kind of what was going on in a little more detail so I want to talk about financial balance sheets and how to think about how those risks work Um, at its most basic level the financial what is the financial system the financial system has on the asset side a bunch of risky assets they represent, in broad terms, the investment opportunities that the economy provides. It's everything from mortgages to consumer loans to various other kinds of investments of one form or another that basically represent investment opportunities for the economy as a whole. And the point is, is that they're ultimately, they're risky. Now, on the other side, we have this problem that most people don't actually want to hold a lot of risk. And so the solution you have is a structure of liabilities where on the other side of that, you have debt is the biggest part of it, which frankly is designed to be low risk. It's designed to have a fixed face value. It's not designed to vary in value. That's the nature of it the risk all gets concentrated at the top in this thing we call equity. And the fundamental problem you see in the financial system is that's the way this is structured. Now, most of the time, that works just fine. But some of the time it doesn't. The fundamental problem with this structure is if you don't actually know what the value of the assets are because they're risky, as long as those assets stay above the level of debt, it's all fine. And that's the way it works in, like, 98% of the time. But occasionally what happens is you have losses that are big enough that they essentially wipe out the equity, and you call into question the debt. 98% of the time, the debt of the financial system is kind of very low risk. But in 2% of the time, you breach that threshold, and that's when you have a problem. There is a fundamental relationship between the riskiness of the assets on the one hand and the amount of equity you have over here, which is essentially this idea of leverage, that is sort of a crucial issue. Now, what tends to happen over time is people make judgments about how much risk there is over here, and they adjust the amount of equity over here to reflect that. If you make, if you miss that judgment, if you assume that these assets are too safe, if there's too little risk in here, you're gonna have too little equity over here, and when something goes wrong, you're gonna breach this threshold, and all of a sudden this debt gets called into question, and that's sort of a crucial aspect of a financial crisis. Now, that's the sort of concept of leverage, right? It's this question of how much of the liabilities of this structure are fixed form versus equity. Now there's another concept which is equally important and that's liquidity. So to make this slightly more complicated, first of all on the liability side, there can be different kinds of debt. There's long-term debt and there's short-term debt. Short-term debt is the debt that you have to roll over all the time. It's the stuff that can leave. So if you're a bank, Short-term debt is things like deposits. Long-term debt are things like long-term bonds that you've issued and you hold on your balance. They're a source of funding, but they're not something that can go away. The problem is the short-term debt can go away very quickly. Now, on the asset side, there are also different kinds of assets. One kind of asset that's very important is what we call liquid assets. What's the difference between a liquid asset and an illiquid asset? A liquid asset is an asset that you can sell quickly, and it won't lose value. That's essentially the definition of assets. Now, imagine what happens to this institution if these short-term debt starts to go away. If they start to lose funding over here, you've got to raise the money somehow. If you've got liquid assets over here that you can sell, that'll work. But if you lose enough of your short-term deposits that you run out of your liquid assets, you're into the regular assets. Those are the assets that are not liquid. Those are the assets that if you sell them, their value will go down. If you have to start selling these assets, you start to bring in questions about, are you gonna breach here? In a crisis, in some ways, the first problem is also, is often this liquidity problem. It's not The first instance is not the solvency problem. Frankly, this is the solvency problem. That's the one that you often hear people talk about. But in fact, it's the liquidity that can actually get you in trouble more quickly. Now, the financial system is actually a network. And a financial crisis is actually really all about contagion. There are lots of different ways of thinking about this, but here are two different representations of the financial system as a network. The one on the left here actually comes from a paper from the Bank of England. It's actually showing you direct exposures among among major UK banks on on the eve of the crisis. This is a different kind of network. This is actually correlations among global equity sectors. Those are, that's a different way of thinking about the financial system as a network. But the key point I want you to take away here, it is, it is the interconnections between firms that really drives this and what matters. Contagion actually happens in a bunch of different ways. And there are a bunch of different concepts for contagion. The first one is direct exposure. The simple point here is that financial institutions hold claims on each other. What is a liability for one firm is an asset for another. So if I actually go back to my, bal- my sort of stylized balance sheet, the point is some of this long-term debt that is a liability for one financial institution is actually an asset for another. So one of the ways contagion happens is if you breach this for one financial institution, that's gonna reduce the value of these as assets. Well, those assets are held in some other institution. And so when you start having a problem in one place, the people that actually own claims on that are gonna have a problem as well. That's the first form of contagion. Now, a second form of contagion is what I call fire sales. If one institution is forced to sell assets, other institutions that hold the same assets are gonna have a problem. So again, if I come back here, so imagine I have an institution that has a run on it, so it loses some short-term funding, they breach this limit, and they have to start selling these assets. The price of those assets is gonna go down. Any other financial institution that holds those assets is going to be adversely affected. That's the second kind of contagion. Now, the third kind of contagion is, I call it adverse selection, but it's really like bank runs. If one institution is in trouble, investors may withdraw funding from other institutions that look the same way. So here, if one institution starts to loom short-term funding because people are worried about it, what investors are going to do is look at other institutions that look like that and they're gonna start withdrawing funds as well. That is the classic bank run. Now, in the crisis we had, all three of these channels of contagion were working. So first of all, on the m- most direct one, banks actually actually issue a lot of debt. Um, bank, other banks hold that debt. So that dire- that channel of direct exposure was very significant. Moreover, there were lots of other ways in which there were exposure. There were a lot of derivatives, complicated transactions, risk was being redistributed in all sorts of ways. But ultimately, it was being distributed within the financial system itself. And if you had a problem in one place, it was gonna spill over to others. One classic example of that was an insurance company called AIG actually wrote a lot of insurance for other financial institutions. So other financial institutions who were worried about their mortgage exposure dealt with it by essentially buying insurance from AIG. When AIG was in trouble, all of a sudden that insurance that they had bought were in trouble. So that was, you know, there was a very substantial part of sort of direct exposure that contributed to the contagion. The fire sales was a huge aspect as well. In that second stage in the crisis, when the funding vehicles started to go bad, what happened was people started selling mortgage-backed securities. As those prices went down, all sorts of other people were adversely affected. And in the last entrance, we had all sorts of instances of true runs. So there was a bank in England called Northern Rock that was one of the first institutions to go down that was the first basic bank run that you'd had in England since I think the 1860s. But it was a true honest-to-God bank run. So all of these channels were kind of working at their peak. And it was this combination of, first of all, you had institutions where, frankly, people overestimated the quality of the assets. So these assets were riskier than people thought. That meant that they didn't have as much equity as they probably should have had. Another consequences of these things being thought to be higher quality assets than there were was people didn't, there was a lot of short-term funding. So you had a combination of small amount of equity, large amount of short-term funding, reassessment of the value of the assets. That was essentially the mix. Now, So um, what caused the crisis? Um, One of the things that's sort of interesting in this field is there are a lot of different people have with different explanations. One argument is housing policy was bad. So this was a mortgage crisis. We had a bunch of policies that were designed, essentially, to promote home ownership. And we also had these GSEs that were managing the risk in a sort of complicated and distorted way. So there's one sort of class of explanations that really focuses on this as a housing and mortgage related crisis. It's not that those things weren't true, but it's not a big enough, frankly, it's too narrow a set of explanations to really capture what happened. Second set of arguments is moral hazard. So the argument is that the governments provide support for the financial institution in a variety of ways and that encouraged that excessive risk taking I just talked about. That essentially the financial institutions understood that they were gonna be bailed out and therefore managed their affairs in a way which magnified the risks. No doubt there's some element of that, but I think that that misses the fact that frankly, the major institutions just made big mistakes. Um. I, you know, when you go back and look at the decisions that were made across the financial institution, I think it's very hard to rationalize the outcomes as being something other than there was a very broad set of misjudgments. A third class of arguments is deregulation. So let me talk about that a little bit. Um, so apologize for this. This is... um U.S. financial history in one chart. Um, this comes from some work I did when I was asked to think about this stuff when I was at Treasury. Um, but what I'm showing you is literally this chart starts in 1775. The blue line on this chart is essentially a measure of the size of the financial system. It's total financial assets over GDP, so it just gives you a sense of the growth of the system. Now, the red dates on this period on this chart. Our major financial crises. You will note that before 1933, we basically had a major financial crisis about every 20 years. That was our experience before the Great Depression. Basically, following the Great Depression, we didn't have another major financial crisis until 2008. So what happened between those two periods? Well, One of the things that happened is, after the Great Depression, there were a bunch of fundamental regulatory changes that were put in place at the time of the New Deal. Those included things like deposit insurance that made the system stabler, but it also included a bunch of things that sort of restricted the financial system like Glass-Steagall, which separated investment from commercial banking. That regulatory structure basically stayed in place until around 1980. From 1980 to 1999, you had a progressive period where a lot of that regulatory structure was unwound. One of the fundamental questions you have to ask is whether or not the stability you had over this period was given up in the deregulation that happened there. So there is an argument to be made that had we not deregulated the system here, maybe that period of stability could have continued. I don't believe it. And the reason I don't believe it is because look at what happened to the size of the system. Now, what explains this? Um, So the financial system grew. This ratio hit about five, so around 1930. And then for about 50 years was relatively stable. There were people who were writing around this time that said that level of five is the normal size of the financial system. I went to Yale, one of my professors was Jim Tobin. He wrote an article in the mid 80s that I kind of worked on that basically made the argument that this level of five is the normal level and we've kind of reached an equilibrium and all that's great. At more or less the time he was writing, this thing took off. And between 1980 and the eve of the crisis, that ratio went from five to 10. Now, what explains that? To me, it's Moore's Law. People underestimate the degree to which information technology has driven innovation in the financial sector. There are lots of different ways you can make this point. This is an iPhone 8. It is essentially equivalent in computing power to the largest computers operating in, the, in basically the mid-90s. Like before the mid-90s this was like more powerful than essentially any computer that was then available. How's that related to finance? Well, um, Again, when I was at Treasury, this is a set of calculations I did that were just sort of illustrative. I wanted to try and get the sense of what has the decline in computing costs done to what's possible in finance. So what I've done is I've I've sort of created a hypothetical mortgage-backed security. So these are these crazy things that we were trading at the time. So imagine you had this hypothetical security. It had 8,000 mortgages in it, average value of 250,000. So the total pool was worth 2 billion. You then assume that a normal desktop PC, which costs $2,000, could support 10 such instruments, and you'd amortize the cost over 10 years. Just totally kind of made up. These assumptions then imply that the IT cost for hardware, for that mortgage-backed security, is $20 a year um, for a single mortgage-backed instrument. Like, minuscule, irrelevant. So if you translate into basis points, That's how many basis points that $20 is on that 250 million. Well, there's some great research that's been done to basically take a look at what's happened to the cost of computing power. There's a wonderful article done by one of my professors at Yale, a guy named Bill Nordhaus, who just won the Nobel Prize, by the way. The article is Two Centuries of Productivity Growth in Computing, it was published in Journal of Economic History in 2007. You can take those estimates and essentially work backwards on how much that would have cost at different points in time. So if you go to 1990, that would have, the cost of that hardware would have been 11 basis points. If I go back to 1980, it's 18.6. If I go to 1970, it's 371 basis points. If I go to 1960, it's that. The basic point is you go back in time and ask yourself whether or not you could have done this, and the answer is you couldn't have. Now what I'm showing you over here is the percentage of mortgages that are held in securitized form. And you can see we went from when that was 370 basis points, only 1.7% of mortgages were held in that complicated form, By the time you got to 1990, when it had fallen from 371 to 11, you've gotten up to 43, and by 2000, it was 600. The story I'm telling you is advances in information technology have sort of driven the complexity. Now, how is that related to deregulation? Well, I would argue what drove the deregulation at this point was those opportunities that were being created by IT, Had you not deregulated, what would have happened? All of that activity would just have migrated outside of the area that was regulated. I talked before about part of the problem was you have banks, and then you have these other things that are less well regulated. Had you kept those regulations tightly on banks, the only thing that would have happened is that activity just would have bled out. So I would argue what got you the deregulation was effectively, it was a response to what technology was doing to the, to the industry. Now, so let me come to my last explanation. Um, so in addition to technology, another thing you have is something generally referred to as the great moderation. It's that the economy in some sense became more stable over time. What I'm showing you here are surprises to GDP growth. You can calculate these a bunch of different ways. I use a simple forecasting model here. And basically what I'm showing you is shocks going back to the 1950s. And you can see that around the early 80s there was a kind of change in this distribution. Before 1980, GDP was very volatile. You kind of Things went up and down a lot. But following that, the economy became more stable. Now, if I go all the way back to that balance sheet I showed you where I made the point that there's a relationship between risk and how much equity you have in the system, essentially what I'm saying is the two decades that ran up to the crisis were a period of unusual stability. And basically, I would argue, the inevitable tendency to take on more risk during that uh, was part of what got us the crisis. In the spring of 2007, so during the sort of the beginnings of phase two. I was at City, and I was asked to come give a presentation on the great moderation to a hedge fund that was run by a guy named Myron Scholes. Myron Scholes won a Nobel Prize in Finance. He was also associated with something called LTCM, which was one of the first hedge funds to blow up in 1998. So, I go to his hedge fund and I start doing this presentation and I'm showing data on all of this. I'm not five minutes into it and he just stops me and said, but aren't people just gonna take on more risk? To be perfectly frank, that was the most prescient thing that anybody said to me in the run up to the crisis. And in retrospect, I think that, the combination of that stability and the innovation that came with IT made the crisis almost inevitable. Now, let me quickly kind of, so what have we done? We've done a bunch of things. The response to the crisis has been, number one, higher capital requirements. We've expanded the capital requirements in a bunch of different ways. Um, They are both higher and more sophisticated, they have more dimensions, and therefore I think do a better job of capturing the risk. Second of all, we put in place liquidity requirements. Liquidity requirements are, that we have are essentially designed to match those two things I described. The, on the one hand, short-term funding versus liquid assets, and then the other is the length of funding for the other long-term assets. Third thing we've had is more intense supervision. So we in, we supervise the big banks in a more intense way. It makes it harder for them to take risks. We now have a more flexible regulatory boundary. So one of the things we have is we have a system that allows us to expand that if we need to. Lastly, in terms of responding to too big to fail, we have tried to make it easier to resolve a major institution if it fails, so you don't have to save it just to save it. I might, uh, there's a question of how big a difference that makes, but we've done that. We've also restricted bailouts. There's some people believe that one of the ways you deal with moral hazard is you limit the ability to do bailouts. To be perfectly frank, I think that's a double-edged sword. Um, I'm sort of running out of time, so I promised you that I would sort of get to, the, get to a point of saying, is the next recession going to be one of these big ones that we just had? Um, my bottom line is no. I think in part because of we've done all these things, the system is actually a lot safer than it used
0: to be. That's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. As always, please email your topics of interest to FelicianoBiz at Montclair.edu or message us on social media. New discussions will be released soon, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and Google Play. The Business Edge is brought to you by the Feliciano School of Business at Montclair State University. Until next time, I'm Erin Blake. Thanks for listening.